Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffress. Dr. Jeffress is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffress. I've learned over the years that different people react differently to any discussion about the end times. In fact, I learned that the hard way more than 50 years ago when I was in high school. One day our English teacher assigned us a project. She said, you can pick any book you want to and read it and then give a creative report of the contents of the book. And so it was a time when that book, The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey had just come out. And it's a book about the end times and how current events uh, coincide with what are the end time prophecies. And I thought the book would be especially good because of what was going on uh, during the time in the world. Uh, Lindsay predicted, uh, like the Bible did, that the king of the north, whom he identified as Russia, would invade Israel in the end times. Now, this seemed especially relevant because President Nixon at the time was in Moscow to try to ease Soviet-U.S. relations. So it was my turn to present my project. And what the class didn't know was that I had arranged with the assistant principal at just the right moment in my presentation to come over the intercom with a special announcement I had written for him. And so I was talking about Russia and Israel and the invasion that was to incur, and right on cue, Mr. Kelly did that little ding, ding, ding on the xylophone. And he came over the loudspeaker with this announcement. We have just received word from United Press International that Israel has invaded Russia. President Nixon is on Air Force One heading back to Washington, D.C. All faculty and students are dismissed to go home and seek shelter as quickly as possible. My teacher, right on cue, yelled out, oh no, it's true, it's true. The students rose up to head toward the exits and I stopped them. I explained it was just an illustration of how one day a headline could be coincidental with end time events. But as I was explaining that to them, suddenly I heard lockers slamming all throughout the school. I heard feet above me running out of the classes the principal had made a mistake, and instead of piping that into our room only like he was supposed to, he sent it throughout the entire school. <laughs> that day, 3,000 students headed toward the exits. 50 years later, people still joke with me about the day that it looked like the world was going to end, at least in Richardson, Texas. You know, the fact is, Jesus is coming back again. And that is good news for the righteous, but it's bad news for the unrighteous. Jesus is coming back to reward the righteous and punish the unrighteous. But his coming will not come without warning. The fact is there are going to be signs. There are going to be headlines that precede the return of Jesus Christ. 
And today we're going to look at five headlines, five events that will signal the end is here. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Now, before we look at these five signs, I want to talk just a moment about the end times in perspective and suggest three extremes we need to guard against when we discuss the end times. One extreme is what I call fanaticism. These are people who are always trying to set the date of the Lord's return. And as we saw in Matthew 24, 36, Jesus said, no man, no man, no angel, not even the Son of Man knows when the return is going to be. So don't set dates. But there's another way fanatics work. They look at every news headline, every news headline, and try to read the tea leaves and say, what is the prophetic significance of this? And they try to say every event has prophetic significance. Some do, some don't. Some signs come and go. When we started this series, uh, Hamas had just attacked Israel. And uh, we started talking about the end times. Now there's a peace deal in the offing, a ceasefire you've probably read about. I don't know what will come of that. I know most instances, uh, ceasefires are just time to reload. Uh, but whether this is the end of the conflict, it's only a temporary end to it. There's going to be constant conflict in the Middle East until the Lord returns. So don't try to read something significant in every headline. The second extreme is really the opposite end of the spectrum, and it's the one most Christians fall in today, and that's fatalism. Fatalism. It's the idea, well, Jesus is coming back again. The world's going to get worse and worse. What can I do about that? Well, I'll tell you what Jesus said we ought to do. We shouldn't curl up in a fetal position. We shouldn't get in our holy huddle and pray nothing bad happens to us. We ought to be out there working harder than other, ever. John 9, 4, Jesus said, work while it is still day because the night is coming when no man can work. We have a responsibility as the church in these last days and in the end times, and that is to preach the gospel, but also to be a preservative, to slow down the decay of our world so that we have longer to preach the gospel to as many people as possible. That's what Jesus said the purpose of the church is. Remember in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 7, Paul is talking about the Antichrist, and he says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Who is he? It's the Holy Spirit of God. He is the one who is restraining evil. Well, you say he's not doing a very good job of it. Well, if you don't think so, just wait till he's taken out of the way. When will he be taken out of the way? When Christians are taken out at the rapture. Right now, it is not just the Holy Spirit floating around like Casper the Friendly Ghost. It's the Holy Spirit indwelling Christians that is the restrainer of evil. Our job right now as Christians is to push back against evil, to restrain evil before this world implodes and there's no longer a chance for repentance. We're to push back against evil, and so many Christians don't understand that. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was given the invocation at a, a luncheon here, a right to life luncheon, and the keynote speaker was Eric McTaxis. He wrote the best-selling book on Bonhoeffer, and he pointed out that the reason Adolf Hitler was able to rise to power in the 30s and 40s, the reason, the reason that Nazism spread like a cancer throughout Europe, 
was because of the silence of German churches, specifically German pastors. They refused to stand up and to speak out. And they found a reason to cover their cowardice. They said things like, well, we don't need to address the Hitler thing. Christians shouldn't get involved in politics. Have you heard that one before? We're not supposed to get involved in politics. We're going to just let whatever happens, happens. Or we believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe God is in control. There's no need for us to get hot and bothered by what Adolf Hitler is doing. It was that indifference that led to the extermination of six million Jews in the ovens because, because Christians remained passive. And we see the same thing today. You know why it is? Why is it that hundreds of thousands of Americans are marching in the streets, either supporting Hamas or the agenda of Hamas, which is nothing but a terrorist organization that beheads babies and burns people alive? Why is that? Why is it for 50 years in our country we celebrated as the greatest constitutional right of all, the right to murder a baby in the womb? We celebrated that. Why is it schools right now are allowed to cram this transgender junk agenda down the throats of our school children without any opposition at all? It's because Christians are AWOL. They are silent. They are passive. They are a bunch of cowards, and they're not speaking up as they, want, as they should. The Bible says we're to stand up. We're to push back. We're to speak out against evil. Don't be fatalistic. Now's the time to work. The third extreme people fall into when it comes to prophecy is cynicism. Cynicism. Perhaps the most dangerous attitude of all. People say all this stuff about the second coming of Jesus. People have believed that from the beginning, and it hasn't happened. I'll never forget hearing one of the most respected ministers in the Metroplex many years ago stand up in his large church. It was Easter Sunday, and I heard him say, for 2,000 years, people have been saying Jesus is coming back again, and he hasn't come back, and he's not coming back. The first time Jesus came is when he came as a little baby in that manger in Bethlehem. The second coming of Jesus is when he comes into our hearts. That's the second coming of Jesus. You know, his words, the words of the cynic, sound eerily similar to what Peter prophesied in the end times. In 2 Peter 3, verse 3, he said, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. That's the secularist uniformitarianism. Everything in nature is uniform. It just keeps rocking along. Peter said, but when they say this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at the time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Peter is saying they forget two times God intervened in human history when he created this world out of nothing, creation. The second time when he destroyed the world by a flood, but there's a third time he's going to intervene, and that is when he burns up this present heaven and earth. He says, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. 
Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says Jesus is coming back again. He's coming back again. There was an article just yesterday in the religion news services about churches, not many of them, that are talking about the end times, and they featured our church, and they were kind of trying to make a little barb at me in the opening sentence. They said, Robert Jeffers doesn't need any prompting to talk about the end times. I take that as a badge of honor. I'm going to talk about it till the day I die. Jesus is coming back again, and we better be ready. That's the message of Revelation. Now, I don't have time. I'm racing against the clock here. But just remember, when we talk about the signs of the end times, we are not technically in the end times yet. The Bible says the end times will begin with the rapture of the church, and it will conclude with the second coming of Christ. That is still future. But we are in the last days. We've been in them for 2,000 years. I think we're in the last of the last days. Some of these signs for the end times that occur after the rapture will start to appear before the rapture. We're seeing that even right now. Let me show you what I mean. Let's look at these five headlines that will characterize the end times. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that Jesus and the disciples were walking through the massive temple, and Jesus made the statement, one day this temple is going to be destroyed. There's not one stone that will be left unturned. Well, that disturbed the disciples. They walked across the Kidron Valley with him, and they sat on the Mount of Olives where so many of us have been so many times. And they said, Lord, about that temple thing, verse 3, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And in verse 4, Jesus said, it's none of your business. Is that what he said? And Jesus said, just work on your prayer life and share the gospel and leave the end times events to me. You don't need to know that stuff. <laughs> That's not what he said at all. Jesus launched into an answer that took two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25, to explain the events of the end times. In fact, it's the longest explanation outside the book of Revelation itself of the end times found in Scripture, and it comes from the lips of Jesus himself. No, he said, I want you to know what the signs are. First of all, he mentions spiritual deception, verses 4 and 5. And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. One spiritual deception is people will say they're the Christ, but that's not the only spiritual deception. Listen to 1 Timothy 4.1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the end times, latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. There'll be a rise in occultism and the Satan worship, and we're seeing that right now. Did you read this week? that there are three elementary schools in Connecticut that are now hosting after-school Satan clubs. Clubs built around the worship of Satan. That's being allowed. That is one predictor of the end times. But all of that is to a, a forerunner to the final deception. It'll occur during the tribulation. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10. The one, that is Antichrist, whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. 
In the end times, the Antichrist will have the ability to perform signs and wonders, supernatural works, just like the magicians did in the Old Testament in Pharaoh's court. God will give Antichrist the ability to do real signs and wonders. That's beyond my understanding, other than Paul says it's to people who have rejected the truth. You can reject God's truth so often that you harden your own heart and you cannot believe the truth any longer, and God sends a deluding lie into your life instead. He's going to deceive people with power and signs, and I just noticed this this week for the first time, and false wonders, things that look to be true but aren't true. Government officials right now are very concerned about the ability to produce videos that look real. They look like the real thing, but they're fake. In fact, just two weeks ago, Russia posted all over the internet a video supposedly of Ukrainian President Zelensky telling his troops to surrender to Russia and laying down their arms. It was fake, but it looked real. There's going to be all kind of havoc caused by these kinds of deceptions. There'll be spiritual deception. Secondly, international conflict. Look at verses 6 and 7. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not frightened, for those things must take place. But it's not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and, <clears throat> and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. The Marxist philosopher Trotsky once said, if you're looking for peace and tranquility, you've chosen the wrong age in which to live. He wrote that 100 years ago. <laughs> what would he say about today's international conflicts? Yes, there are wars and rumors of wars, but it's not the end yet, but it's moving toward the end. Everything is moving to that one final world confrontation on the plain of Megiddo in Israel, the war we call Armageddon. By the way, Armageddon is not just mentioned once in the Bible. It's mentioned repeatedly in the Old and New Testaments. Listen to the prophet Daniel in the 6th century B.C., 500 years before Christ, in Daniel 11, he describes that final conflict. Look at Daniel 11, verse 40. At the end time, the king of the south, possibly a coalition of Arabian and African nations, will collide with the Antichrist, and the king of the north, perhaps it is Russia, will storm against him with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he will enter countries and overthrow them and pass through. He'll enter the beautiful land, that is Israel, and many countries will fall. Verse 42, then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. Verse 43, but he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver. Now note this in verse 44, but rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him. Who are the rulers of the east? Many used to identify it as Red China. It could be Iran or a coalition of Iran and Red China. John says he saw a 200 million man army coming from the east. And the Antichrist will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful mountain. His headquarter will be Jerusalem, and he will come to his end, and no one will be there to help him. Or look at Zechariah, the prophet, 500 years before the time of Christ, what he wrote in chapter 14, beginning with verse 
1. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city of Jerusalem will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. Do you see the order? There's going to be a great gathering of the world forces in Jerusalem, and that is when the Lord will return. In that day, verse 4, the Messiah's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will be moved toward the north and another toward the south. That's how cataclysmic it will be when the Son of God finally returns. Doesn't sound like he's returning in your heart. <laughs> he's coming back to earth, literally, he promised. Revelation chapter 16 Verses 12 to 16, contemplate the war of Armageddon. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east, that 200 million man army. I just point out the Euphrates was the mighty river in biblical times. It brought life to the entire Middle East. The thought of the Euphrates back then drying up would be like thinking about the entire Mississippi River drying up completely or the Atlantic Ocean drying up. It was an unthinkable today. Just last night, I was reading about ecologists who are concerned about the rapid evaporation that is happening of the Euphrates River. By this pace, it will be completely dried up by 2040. And uh, it's just something that we're starting to see happen. But God's going to dry it up in the end times to prepare for Armageddon. Look at verse 23. And I, John, verse 13, and I, John, saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that is the Antichrist, and of the, or Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, three unclean spirits, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Demons will be used to lure these kings into the plain of Megiddo, but it is God who is ultimately doing that. Now look at verse 16, and they gather them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Megeddon. Now, I have people ask me this all the time. They say, Pastor, what do you think of the preterist view of Revelation? It's the idea that, yes, these prophecies were for, written, but they've already been fulfilled in ancient history. What do you say to that? I say, that's partially true. These prophecies, for the most part, had an immediate partial fulfillment. But their complete fulfillment has not yet occurred, and it won't until the end times. For example, can you tell me when it is that the Euphrates River dried completely up? That hasn't happened yet. When has there been a 200 million man army coming from the east? That hasn't happened yet. And when in the world in history did Jesus Christ return to the Mount of Olives and split it in two? Did that happen and I just missed it in the news? No, those things have not yet happened. There is plenty found in Daniel and Revelation that is yet to come. Remember when Napoleon looked out over the plain of Megiddo in Israel? He said, this is the most natural battlefield in all of the world. 
It's going to be the scene of the great world conflict. Jesus said, sign one is spiritual deception. Secondly, international conflict. Thirdly, natural disasters. In various places, verse 7, there will be famines and earthquakes. <clears throat> we see those all the time. Thousands being killed through famines and earthquakes. But the biggest earthquake and famine is yet to come. In Revelation 16:3, the second bold judgment says that the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. One thing that's going to happen, one natural disaster, is the destruction of every species of marine life. Can you imagine what that will do to the Earth's ecosystem when every living thing and the oceans die, they will die. And it won't be because of plastic straws. <laughs> it won't be because of global warming. It will be because God does it. God does it. He pours out his third judgment in verses 4 to 7 of Revelation 16. A third judgment is the destruction of all fresh water. Look at Revelation 16, 4. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. Man can only live 40 days without food, but only three days without water, and yet that is what will happen. In verses 8 and 9, the fourth bold judgment will be an increase in the intensity of the sun. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. What explains this growing intensity of the sun? Perhaps God alters the tilt of the earth's axis. Perhaps the protective ozone layer that guards us against dangerous rays from the sun, perhaps that will be completely destroyed. If that's the case, it won't because, be because we use too much hairspray. It will be because God has destroyed it and unleashed that judgment upon mankind. There will also be earthquakes. And Jesus talked about earthquakes the mother of all earthquakes is yet to come in Revelation 16, verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air. Interesting. He poured it upon the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Could John be describing a nuclear holocaust? Talking about the earth being burned up in the air? How else would somebody living in the first century describe something that was peculiar to our century? Nuclear weapons. Whatever this is, it results in such a great earthquake, verse 18, such as never been seen since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty that the great city Jerusalem was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Again, when has that happened in history? How does the preterist explain this? This is something yet to come. Now, in Jesus' other sermon that was shorter than this sermon that he pre preached in Luke 21, Jesus added a sign to natural disasters beyond earthquakes and famines. He said pestilences. Jesus said the end times will contain pestilences. Now, I have to confess to you, when I used to read that, I thought he was talking about locusts and bow weevils. That's not what the word means. Pestilence means plague, disease. There'll be an increase in worldwide diseases. 
We saw 100 years ago the Spanish flu killing millions of people. Then there was Ebola. There was COVID-19. But the biggest one is yet to come. Now, here's something to cheer you up for Thanksgiving. I just came across this headline this week. Now, listen to this. Next pandemic deemed the big one could be the most contagious and deadliest disease known to humanity, scientists warned. The article goes on to describe how a family of viruses are right now simmering in the background, waiting to unleash the most contagious and deadliest diseases known to humanity. All of these are signs, signals of the end times. Fourth, the persecution of Christians, Jesus said, will indicate his return is soon. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and they will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Now, there has been worldwide persecution of Christians from the very beginning and it's increased and increased in frequency and intensity. Did you know there were more Christian martyrs in the 20th century than in all other centuries combined? And it's looking to be the same way in the 21st century. We are not aware of that as American Christians because we don't feel that kind of literal, physical persecution. There are other kinds of persecution we experience, not that kind yet, but it is coming. Jesus said nobody will be able to escape it. And finally, he gave the sign of widespread apostasy. Look at verses 10 to 12 of Matthew 24. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Now think about it. To fall from faith to unfaith means that you have to have some kind of faith to begin with. Atheists can never fall into apostasy. They can't fall from something to apostasy. They're already in unfaith. You can't fall from unfaith to unfaith. He's talking about people here who will give the appearance of being Christians. They will proclaim that they are Christians, but they're fake Christians, as evidenced by the fact they fall away. And you see that all across America today. Many churches that claim to be Bible-based evangelical churches, they're giving up their belief in the basic doctrines of the Christian faith, the blood atonement of Jesus for our sins, the deity of Christ, the inspiration and inerrancy of every word in this book, the exclusivity of Jesus for salvation. Nearly 60% of evangelical Christians believe that there's more than one way to heaven other than faith in Jesus Christ. That is apostasy. Are these people losing their salvation? Of course not. It just proves they never were saved to begin with. And John says, they went out from us because they were not of us. For had they been of us, they wouldn't have gone out from us. There'll be widespread apostasy in the last days. So what are we supposed to do? Some Christians say, well, we need to have these massive prayer meetings and pray for a great revival. Pray for a great revival. That's fine, and I don't belittle anybody who sincerely wants to do that. You pray all you want to. But there's going to be no great revival before the rapture. There's not. There's going to be an apostasy, a falling away. That doesn't mean we're to be silent or inactive, but don't expect a great worldwide revival. There's not going to be one, Jesus said. 
before the rapture. Now, interestingly, in the tribulation, in the end times, there is going to be a worldwide revival. 144,000 Jewish missionaries are going to be saved and sealed and preach the gospel. Revelation 7 says there'll be the biggest revival the world has ever seen. Interestingly, people will pay to be saved in that time. They'll have to pay with their lives. But don't expect a worldwide revival right now. But that doesn't mean we're not to work. What should be our response in light of these things that are coming? Let me say a word corporately as a church, what we're supposed to do. Jesus said in John 9, 4, work while it is still day, for the night is coming when nobody can work. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe we have a limited time to share the gospel with people before Christ comes back. Let's take advantage of those opportunities. That's why we have this mission 1-8 and light of the world. It's not just so Ben has something to talk about before the offertory prayer. This is a strategy we have. No church has a bigger platform right now to reach the world with the gospel than First Baptist Dallas. Let's take advantage of it. Let's do everything we can to get the gospel to as many people as possible as quickly as possible. That, you can clap if you want to on that. That is our goal. But there's an individual response to this truth of Christ's soon coming. And you find it in Revelation 16, verse 15. John is outlining all of the events, getting ready for Armageddon, the demons luring the kings of the earth to that place called Armageddon. And then, in your Bible, this statement is in parenthesis in verse 15. It's a parenthetical thought that comes from Jesus himself that seems to interrupt what John is talking about, but really it's the greatest application you could ever come up with. Jesus said, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. In December of 1992, our family was called to Wichita Falls to pastor the church there. It was December of 1992, and our housing situation wasn't worked out yet, so the church put us up in the local Sheraton Hotel. One night, we were fast asleep, freezing outside, when all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, the fire alarm sounded, and uh, the announcer came over, the speaker, and said, Everybody needs to evacuate as quickly as possible. A fire has been reported. So, I mean, we scrammed out of there and got out of the hotel, stood on the parking lot for what seemed like eternity. And they finally, after about 30 minutes, explained it was a false alarm. I was standing there freezing to death in my pajamas. And I remember being so ashamed, the new pastor of the First Baptist Church of Wichita Falls standing in the parking lot in his pajamas. I was embarrassed until I looked around and saw that a lot of people got out with a lot less than their pajamas and had a lot more reason to be embarrassed. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a time coming when there's going to be a real alarm. For a future generation, it will be an alarm signaling the second coming of Jesus. 
For this present generation, it'll be the rapture of the church or even our own individual death. But an alarm is coming. If you wait until the alarm comes to get dressed, you won't have time. You've waited too long. You have to already be dressed when that alarm comes. What do you mean, pastor, be dressed? There's only one garment you can put on that will guarantee you're not ashamed at the Lord's coming or when you meet God. And that garment is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His perfection, his goodness, his forgiveness. If you try to face God in your own righteousness, goodness, you're going to be ashamed. You're going to be sadly disappointed. Jesus is saying, make sure you're properly dressed. Don't wait until some future time. Don't wait until the alarm sounds. Put on that garment of righteousness right now. If I were going to choose a theme song for this series, Living in the End Times, it would be the song I cited a couple of weeks ago. When he shall come. Not if he should come. When he shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in him be found. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Sing it with me. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. Even so, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Let's bow together in prayer. I'm asking that nobody leave, please, for any reason. I would be guilty of pastoral negligence if I didn't give you an opportunity right now to put on that garment of righteousness, to make sure you're ready either for your death or the return of Jesus, whichever comes first. How do you put on that garment of righteousness? First, you have to admit that your own righteousness isn't enough. Your good works, your church membership, your baptism, none of those things will do it. God said to Isaiah the prophet, your righteousness, the best you can do is like a filthy rag to me. No. We have to admit to God, we need his goodness to cover us. And that's why Christ came to die. When he hung on the cross, he paid the price for our sins. He took the punishment we deserve from God. And when you say, God, I'm not trusting in my works. I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me, clothed me in his righteousness and forgiveness. When you do that, you can know your sins are forgiven. And you will be welcomed into heaven forever and ever. Today, if you're ready to receive that gift of forgiveness, whether you're here or you're watching online, I encourage you to pray this prayer with me, knowing that God is listening to you. Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know I have failed you in so many ways, and I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I believe what I've heard today, that you love me so much you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me, to take the punishment I deserve to take for my sins. 
And right now I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me. Not in my good works, but in what Jesus did for me to save me from my sins. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.